0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: People today are hacking people versus hacking technology to get into companies.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Tim Sadler from Tessian on how oversharing on social media can open the door for hackers. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump in with some stories this week. Why
0: don't you kick things off for us? All right, Dave. My story comes from Abishek Ayer at Armor Blocks, and he has the story of two vishing emails that impersonate Amazon. This is interesting, a vishing email. The first email is sent from a Google account, and it has the subject invoice ID followed by what looks like a genuine invoice number from Amazon. It follows the same syntax, has the same, I guess, regular expression and everything. And the email also contains HTML styling similar to genuine Amazon emails. These are probably just stolen directly from an Amazon email. And it includes information on an LG OLED TV and an Xbox game console. So they're talking about the purchase of some pretty expensive equipment. And the email alleges that the person who received the email is the person who purchased it, and it's got a nice price tag down at the bottom that makes you go, oh, I I better pay attention to this. Near the bottom of the email, the notice says the Amazon team, but Amazon is spelled with a zero in place of an O, which Hmm. is interesting. And Abhishek says that this is a simple but effective technique to slip past any deterministic filters checking for brand impersonation. There is a button on the email that says manage your order, but this button is actually just a, an image file. There's no URL behind it, right? Like like there is with an Amazon email. And even if there is an Amazon email, you, you shouldn't be clicking that button anyway. You should be going, in, going to Amazon, clicking on my account, manage my orders, and do it that way. But the real payload in this email is the contact us phone number. So there's Mm -hmm. a phone number at the bottom of the page that says contact us. So if you get this email and you say, whoa, I didn't order this TV and Xbox. Let me see if I can click on this email to manage the order, this link to manage the order and cancel it. That doesn't work. I guess I better call Amazon. Oh, look, here's a customer service number. You know, Dave, I deal with Amazon frequently, and I have yet to be able to find an Amazon customer service number.
2: <laughs> yeah. Legend has it it exists but it's kind of like a uh, Sasquatch, you know, like right. it's it, right. if you if you do see it, it it's blurry and you're not going to be able to <laughs> convince anyone that you actually did see it. So you might as well just keep it to yourself, you know, right. because uh, people are people are going to laugh at you if you say that you found Amazon's uh, phone
0: number. I've got trail cams all over my internet trails and I've <laughs> never caught a picture of the Amazon phone number uh but amazon does actually do a good job you click contact us and they'll, they will call you which is great I, I actually did this just this past week this happened to me so i, ha- mm. I had to talk to amazon and and uh i went th- through the app and i said contact me and they did they contacted me armor blocks actually did call this number and they said they used a disposable google voice number which is sometimes what i do and a real person answered the call and pretended to be from the amazon team and they asked for the order number, the name and the credit card details before cutting the call off and blocking the number. So hmm. these guys realized that they had uh, caught the attention of a security company and were like, oh, well, these guys are just gonna try to penetrate us. We better stop doing this. They speculate that the full vishing flow may have involved the uh, extrication of other sensitive personal information as well. Like, hey, what is your Amazon login, right? What's, mm-hmm. your, what's your Amazon username and password? Uh, That kind of stuff. What's your credit card number? Those kind of things. The Hmm. second email was sent from a spoofed email ID, no reply at amzeinfo.com. So it kind of looks like the Amazon domain, but it isn't. Uh, And it passes what they call the eye test. And it says, a shipment with goods is being delivered along with a random order number. So I I like the idea, a a shipment with goods. I mean, does anybody ever still talk about buying goods Money can be for <laughs> goods, goods and, and services.
2: Goods and services, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> yeah.
0: Just like the other message, there are no links to click. It's just a phone number, and this time when they called it, it just rang and rang and rang, and then a few hours later, the number was taken out of service. So mm. this one was gone before they could test it. But it's no big wow. deal for the attackers. They can just set up a new one. What was interesting about this, and what, what Abhishek notes in this article, is that these emails bypass the Microsoft security security these emails were detected in uh, or picked up in Microsoft 365, Office 365 accounts or Microsoft 365, however they're branding it now. You know, they're always changing the brands. Uh, but it had a spam confidence level of one. Both of them did, which meant the email was determined to not be spammed by Office 365 and delivered to the recipients' inboxes. So mm. these guys have crafted an email that just went right by all of the spam filters and put Mm -hmm. a phone number in front of a user. I have heard you say on the CyberWire and on on this podcast, we've said this, that spam filters are great and you should definitely use them, but they are about 90% effective, which means one out of every 10 spam messages gets through to the user. So the users still have to be prepared for getting spam messages. They still have to be conscious and thinking about the security of things when they get them. And this doesn't just apply in your corporation, because I don't think these guys are targeting people in a corporate environment. They're probably targeting individuals. That means people like you, me, our moms and dads, and and aunts and uncles and, and kids even, have to be aware of this as a vector of attack.
2: All right. Well, uh, it's an interesting story. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. My story uh, has some similar elements coming at it from a a little different direction. This is from the folks over at Palo Alto Networks. This is their Unit 42. That's their, their threat intelligence team. And they are discussing a clever way that the bad guys are getting people to put a particular piece of malware on their computers and this malware is called bazaar loader mm-hmm. uh, and it's B A Z A R
0: now we've heard loader. of this loader before right
2: yeah it's a backdoor so once it's in your system basically that's the ball game you right. know they they have full access to everything on your computer but this campaign similar to what you were describing uh, makes use of a lot of human interactions and it's quite elaborate basically what happens is you get an email and the email says that uh, you have signed up for some sort of trial and your trial is is getting ready to expire for example uh, the 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 sample that they provide here it says uh, this message is just a reminder regarding your current premium your premium trial is coming to an end but the banking card you've mentioned in your existing profile will likely be used to extend your subscription, right? So already, Joe, you know, this is, right. we, we've all had these sorts of things where if you don't cancel, you're automatically going to get signed up for another year.
0: Yeah. Now there is right? one thing I'll say, Dave, is that yeah, a lot of times these guys don't send you that warning email. They just start billing you because when right. you sign up, you agree. If I don't cancel by the end of the trial period, I allow you to bill me. Yes, that is true. What business guy in their right mind is going to say, "Well, let's tell the customer about that and remind them that it's time to cancel that subscription"?
2: Well, that's yeah, <laughs> maybe a legitimate business guy, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is what they're trying to convince you that they are, right? Exactly. Uh, but they are not. They right. are not. So they're
0: warning you that it's coming.
2: Right. In fact, there's a sentence here. It says, "Thank you so much for your personal faith in our service." <laughs> okay. So they provide a phone number, a support phone number. Now, what's interesting is the phone number that they provide here, if I can describe how it looks in the email, it's spread out. Like there's, a, there's an area code and the prefix and then the last four digits. And there's a lot of space in between each of those numbers. They pointed out here is that they're using some white on white obfuscation here. There are actually characters in those white spaces, but they're the same color as the background. So they appear invisible.
0: They're not printable characters.
2: And that's a way to hide them from the viewer, but also hide them from the scanning software that might be looking for an embedded phone number or something yeah, like that. Absolutely, right? it, it hides it. So if you call that number, you reach a call center, and they have actually have a transcript of a, a interaction between the folks, uh, the call center, uh, and they ask you to go to a website. In this case, it's called World Books. And it's uh, worldbooks.us. If you go to the World Books website, a page loads up and it looks like a legitimate website. It says, download your books directly on your iOS or Android, no USB cable required. So it looks like it's some sort of a a book reading app. Um, The operator then asks you to go to the subscribe button, look for the unsubscribe button. There's a link at the bottom. It says, do you want to unsubscribe? And you, you click on that. Uh, it asks you to enter your subscription number, which they had put in to the email. So again, we're we're having this interaction with this customer service person, right? right. And we're building rapport, and we're getting more and more comfortable. You know, we're going mm-hmm. down what is seems to be a normal pathway. No, there's nothing unreasonable yet. It all looks it all looks good. It, it feels good. It's a little bit of a pain to have, you have to do this in the first place, but you feel like you're making progress. Right. And then. At some point, when you uh, put in your confirmation number, your subscription number, it asks you to download an Excel file. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The person uh, pretending to be the victim in this case asks the operator, says, well, what is this? Why is it asking me to, uh, to download an Excel file? And the operator says, that is the confirmation document. That's where you put in your confirmation code. All right. So you download the document, the Excel file. You try to open the document, and of course, the the operator on the phone is telling you this is what you need to do to to unsubscribe. You try to open the document, and the document says this document is protected. You have to press enable editing and enable content to preview this document. Uh-huh. So what do we what are we doing here, Joe? What are we're we en- enabling?
0: We're enabling macros, Dave. Um, Yes, (laughs) and that is code that is behind the scenes here in microsoft files there are macros that you can enable that document displays that information and when you enable the macros it may change the information but you must enable macros in order to view the content that's just the contents of the document that is what's in there but there is code behind the scenes that's going to do all kinds of bad stuff i'll bet what happens after i do what this guy tells me and uh, enable the macros well, I mean, that, that is
2: the ball game. That, right. That's when it downloads uh, the Bazaar Loader backdoor and installs it. Uh, and so now your computer belongs to them. Right. Um, but what's interesting is that the, the operator doesn't just hang up on you. And <laughs> the operator actually <laughs> continues. In this case, the operator put the caller on hold for about a minute, came back and said, I've checked with the IT department, and they're saying that your cancellation went through correctly. We're having an issue with our servers, so you might not get confirmation right away, but the cancellation went through successfully, so nothing's going to be charged to your account. We're all good here. Uh, Thank you very much. Have a good day. So off you go, thinking that you have dodged a bullet, when instead you have actually thrown your body in front
0: of the bullet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You think you're off scot-free when, in fact, you're pwned. Right. 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 Absolutely. Well, that's insidious.
2: It is. It is. So, I mean, let's talk about you know how we could go about
0: preventing this sort of thing. Think about this from your perspective. Do you remember signing up for any services? You know, one of the things Brian Krebs talks about is if you didn't ask for it, don't download it, right? Um, yeah. Or don't install it or whatever. But did you sign up for a service? Maybe if you use a credit card. To sign up for services online, you can always say this is a fraudulent charge. So that's one way to right. protect yourself. When you get the call center, you know, actually, instead of calling the number in the email, look up the number online. Although, yeah. I don't know, if, they, if they're saying they could very well establish an entire company that makes it look like you've purchased something from them, right? They, they could fake all this, right? And even, yeah. if, even if you then Google the, the fake company, you're still getting connected to this call center. Of course, the other thing is you've downloaded something from the internet. You really don't know what it is. Don't enable macros on it. No matter how much they insist upon that, that is a big red flag. Yeah, downloading any file right.
2: and, and, and being asked to execute it to unsubscribe from something that's certainly not necessary.
0: But I can absolutely see where somebody would believe it is. This is terrible because once the person picks the phone and calls, I'll bet this has a very high success rate. I would imagine so.
2: So the folks at uh, Unit 42 go into some of the other technical details here. It's an interesting one, definitely worth checking out. The transcript between the fake customer service person and the the caller is quite interesting. Uh, So it's a good one to check out and uh, share because I think what's interesting here also is how much these bad actors are investing in infrastructure like call centers to make these things work. Right,
0: I mean that's an expense. I should note, Dave, that I I did look at this this article, and when you enable macros, the file does change and present different content. So it looks it looks even more plausible.
2: Mm, I see. We'll have a link to that uh, in our show notes, of course. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day.
0: Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Scott who writes, I didn't respond to this one, but I don't remember this particular scam being shared on hacking humans. And this actual scam was sent to Scott via fax. Dave, do you have a fax machine? (laughs) No,
2: I I left my fax machine in 1985. (laughs) (laughs) I thought
0: this was astounding. This is a a phishing fax (laughs) Mm -hmm. that, that Scott received. Dave, why don't you read it? Dear Scott Shabel,
3: my name is Edward Williams. I'm a partner at Williams LLP Canada. Apologies if my letter came to you as a surprise, since there's been no previous correspondence between us. There is an unclaimed permanent life insurance policy held by our deceased client. The transaction pertains to an unclaimed transfer on death savings monetary deposit in the sum of 11030900 United States dollars. The policyholder was one of our clients, the late Dr. Amos Schabel, who was an investor and previous stone dealer. He died in an auto crash over nine years ago. Since his death, no one has come forward for the claim, and all of our efforts to locate his relatives have proved unsuccessful. The insurance company code stipulates that insured permanent policies not claimed must be turned over to the abandoned property division of the state after 10 years. Therefore, I ask for your consent to be in partnership with me for the claim of this policy benefit. In view of the fact that you share the same last name and nationality with the deceased, if you permit me to add your name to the policy, all proceeds will be processed on your behalf. I wish to point out that I want 10% of this money to be shared among charity organizations, while the remaining 90% will be shared between us! Yay! This is 100% risk-free. I do have all necessary documentation to expedite the process in a highly professional and confidential manner. I will provide all the relevant documents to substantiate your claim as the beneficiary. This claim requires a high level of confidentiality, and it may take up to 30 business days from the date of receipt of your consent. Kindly provide a reachable contact number for faster communication. Your earliest response to this matter would be highly appreciated.
0: Edward Williams, principal partner. (laughs) So this is a typical insurance scam or or, uh, beneficiary scam. If Scott were to reply to this, he'd be he'd be getting uh, phone calls from these people and they'd be trying to convince him to pay some fees or something. And that's that's where, where the goal is here. But right. I, I find it interesting that it comes via fax and that they um, that they have tailored this for Scott. They know his uh, his fax number and they address it to him and they have tailored the the alleged deceased's name, the fictitious. There is nobody that has died um, <laughs> to have the same last name Um it, it very clever, very clever. I I'm glad Scott didn't fall for this. I hope none of our listeners would fall for this. Uh, they would just they would just either crumple this up and throw it in the trash, or do as Scott did and send it to us. We could read it <laughs> wonder, on the air. I wonder how many people still have active fax machines. Yeah, that's a
2: great running like a great question. You know, a dedicated fax line, I mean, I could see, I could see still having fax capabilities and and being like, okay, you're sending me a fax? All right, let me turn on my fax machine (laughs) and I'm ready for it. But uh, like, uh, you know what's funny? I just saw this past week that, uh, I want to say it was like the Department of Defense is retiring their secure fax capabilities. They had some sort of encrypted fax system that, you know, that they've been using for decades and they finally decided to pull the plug on it, that they're going to some sort of Better encrypted, you know, electronic system of communication, and I say it's about time. <laughs> right?
0: Actually, you know, there's fax is actually pretty good, and if you've got good encryption on the fax, it's fine. But I think it's just really slow and tedious. I mean, yeah. there are much better ways to communicate information in a particularly in a secure manner with the Department of Defense or any anybody that needs to do that. There's no need to do this anymore. Yeah. They were miraculous when they were new, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Now it's, oh, you got to send me a, f- oh, nobody likes this anymore.
2: Right. Are you kidding me? Right. Like, what? I, okay, let me figure out how to do that. Well, thanks to our listeners, Scott, for sending that in to us. We would love to hear from you. You can send catch of the day to hackinghumans at com. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Tim Sadler. He's from a company called Tessian. And uh, our conversation centered on this whole notion of oversharing on social media and how that can help open the door for hackers. Here's my conversation with Tim Sadler. So today we're talking about the report that you all recently put out. This is How to Hack a Human. And I have to say, you win the prize for the most suitable report to be covered on our Hacking Humans podcast. So congratulations for that. Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, let's dig in. Uh, Let's start with some high-level stuff here. I mean, what prompted the creation of this report?
1: I think it's the simple fact that actually attacks on companies and organizations are far more basic than most people think. They're far more fundamental. I'm thinking of the people in my life that I speak with, you know, my parents maybe, who don't even think about cybersecurity, but they think they know what hacking is. And they're often surprised when I tell them that people today are hacking people versus hacking technology to get into companies. And a lot of these breaches that we read about are actually because an attacker hacked a human rather than hacking a piece of technology. So we really wanted to just try and create something and do a piece of research around the problem of hacking humans uh, and bringing this story and creating awareness around this risk to as many people as possible.
2: Well, let's go through the report together.
1: What are some of the things that stand out to you? I think there are really three things that we covered in the report. There was this concept of social media overload. So just how much people actually share on social media every week. So 84% of people post on social media every week. Two-fifths, so about 42%, post every day And these people are sharing a lot of information online about things like hobbies, interests, relationships, locations, etc. Half share the names and pictures of their children, and almost three quarters, about 72%, mention birthday celebrations. And the reason why those things are problematic is because a lot of people also use those kinds of pieces of personal information in things like secrets, so things like their password or their password recovery uh, information. The second core finding for the report was about out-of-office responses and 93% of people enabling out-of-office responses when they're on vacation. Um, And in that out-of-office response, actually giving at least one personal detail. Now. Out-of-office responses are are necessary. I said an out-of-office and they are an important part of actually managing things when you are out of the office. But what some people don't realize is that actually those out-of-office responses can also be used to aid attackers in terms of understanding whether somebody is at work or away from work and if you're putting in information to that out of office message for example who to contact or telephone details or you know if this is regarding a financial inquiry contact this person all of those things can be used again to hack humans mm-hmm. and then the final thing in the report to call out is the need for cybersecurity awareness so while at work only about half of people pay attention to their sender's email address and less than half about 44% check the legitimacy of links and attachments before responding or taking action. Um, And this is, again, really, really important and pretty concerning because 88% of the respondents that we surveyed received a suspicious email uh, in 2020. So it was really those three things, social media overload, out-of-office responses, and then also the need for cybersecurity awareness that we covered in that report.
2: How much of the issue with social media is dialing in who you share things with in addition to the things that you share? I mean, I guess where I'm coming from is, you know, a big part of what makes social media fun is being able to wish someone a happy birthday or share photos of your kids, you know, at at school or events or, or things like that. How
1: much of this is a matter of not making those things available to the general public? I, I think a lot of it is is that. So I think it's it's just being very mindful and aware of the settings and controls you have on your social media accounts. If you are sharing all of your social media accounts and the information that you put out there publicly, that is not good. Um and if you are yeah. sharing it with everybody, for example, if you have a Twitter account and you know everybody uh with a Twitter account can see what you're posting then you just need to be conscious of that and you need to adjust the information that you're sharing. The second thing, though, and I think this is, you know, the fundamental point, is anything that is used for access or passwords, you really need to make sure that you're not basing those secret pieces of information on things that attackers can find out about you easily on the internet. So this is pretty easy when it comes to passwords. Just use a strong, indecipherable, ideally generated via a password manager password. And then, you know, you significantly limit that risk it can be a little bit more difficult when you're using services that have some kind of password recovery and you know things like the name of your pet or the name of your mm-hmm. child might be a recovery phrase in which case you can't always control what the recovery uh, question is so you do actually just need to be conscious then of who you're sharing the information with but of course we understand yeah absolutely Everyone uses social media. It's an important part of our lives. And we're not saying don't share any information on these platforms. It's just about being aware of these risks and, and managing things accordingly.
2: There's an interesting uh, section of the report where you uh, describe the information that is on a boarding pass, for example. And uh, I think a lot of people when they're traveling, it's sort of a fun thing to post a picture of your boarding pass. Here we go. We're off on holiday, you know, but there's a lot of information in there.
1: There is uh, completely. And again, it's it's one of those things that we now do. We we document our lives. We take so many photographs. And we want to share that with our friends. We want to share it with the world. There is a lot of personally identifiable information about us on these kinds of documents. So it could be a picture of your boarding pass or, or as crazy as it sounds, it could be a, a picture of your passport. I remember seeing something um, a year back where uh, somebody was tweeting at their bank to help them with a support query they had. And they sent a picture of their bank card in a tweet to the bank <laughs> to say, hey, oh, can you my. assist me? Um, <laughs> right. So it is pretty crazy. And as obvious as these things may seem to some people, I think we just sometimes get lost in in how... Um, yeah, in how much we share and, you know, we share freely.
2: What are some of the tips that you have then for folks to to strike that good balance between still being able to enjoy the things they want to do online, but having, uh, you know, good security practices? What sort of things do you recommend?
1: It really comes back to advice that I, I find myself giving To everybody that I know, family members, friends, whenever asked about security, I think two things we can all do just to limit this kind of information being leveraged to hack us as humans is to use a password manager and to use strong passwords and not use the same password for the same services. And the second thing is to enable two-factor authentication of some kind on as many of the accounts that we use as possible. So if they have two-factor authentication available, use it. And what this means, again, this this isn't foolproof, and this doesn't mean that you're then immune to being hacked, but it makes it significantly harder for hackers to, through an understanding of your profile online, it makes it much harder for people to then try and get into your accounts and compromise those systems. The second thing then is, I think it's about being aware of the security controls and privacy controls you have on your social media accounts. So just always worth going into the settings page and just understanding, what are you actually sharing and with who. So it's really easy to do this in in LinkedIn and in Twitter and Instagram, so on and so forth. You can actually implement privacy controls. So, you know, maybe you actually limit who can see the posts that you're putting out. And then the final thing I would say is I think it's just really important to have a general awareness that there are people out there that are scraping social media profiles on the internet to try and build up an understanding and a picture of people's personal lives in order to try and launch attacks where they are trying to guess passwords or they're trying to force password reset, etc. Through these things, they may seem to you like only you would know them. But again, we are now sharing them with the world. And then maybe just the final thing I would say is an awareness that by gaining access to this kind of information, hackers may not have to compromise your account directly directly but they can use knowledge of your life and of you as a person to create a very targeted, very convincing phishing emails or a phishing SMS that may then trick you into accessing a website that then forces you to give over credentials that then can be used to compromise your account. So I would encourage people to be uh, aware of those final two things, and then also just to implement safe practice when it comes to social media accounts that you have, using strong passwords, not reusing passwords, and then also enabling two-factor authentication. All
0: right, Joe, what do you think? Well, I agree with you, Dave. That is a great name for a report. Oversharing is a big problem, particularly on social media and I love this vector of out-of-office responses. And Tim makes an excellent point that if you're in accounts payable, right, and you you say, I'm out of the office right now, if you need assistance with a bill, please contact, I don't know, Tracy. Let's say Tracy in, in accounts payable as well. Uh, right. and, and that person goes, oh, wow, look, I'm an attacker and I just emailed this person because I saw on Facebook that they were out of the office and look, they gave me the information. Now I can send an email to Tracy and say I was working with the person that, I, that sent me this thing. And that lends instant credibility to the attack. Right. Uh, which right. is what a lot of this is is talking about, is the ability for the attacker to have instant credibility based on the information that they've collected. I find it disheartening that less than half the people who receive an email check the legitimacy of the link. We've been standing on the mountaintops for years screaming about this, and yeah. it seems like nobody's listening, Dave. <laughs> security settings can make it much more safe to share things on social media but the problem with this is that's not the default by default Mm. when you sign up for a facebook account everything is public same with twitter it's all public with everybody Right, You have to proactively go in and make these changes. I've done that. I don't let anybody except my friends on Facebook see my posts. Twitter, however, is different. I have a different use case for that. I want everybody to see my posts on Twitter. And I don't put things on Twitter like, hey, I'm going to be out of town this week. I just don't do that. (laughs) I don't even do that on Facebook, mainly because I don't trust my friends, Dave. I I run with a seedy (laughs) crowd. So take some time, go through Facebook, and lock that thing down. You know, when I see friend recommendations come up on Facebook, often I click on them. And one of the things I subconsciously do is, let's see how much I can look, I can, how much information I can get about this person. And Hmm. about 50% of the time, they have their accounts locked down. And I'm like, all right, good. But the other 50% of the time, they're just wide open. Everything's out there. One of the things that Tim said is absolutely true. Passwords that are easy to remember are easy to guess. So use a password manager and, and use cryptic passwords. On those knowledge based authentication questions for password resets, lie, 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 lie. (laughs) Make something up and make a note of it in your password manager if your password manager has notes. That is what I do every single time. I don't even have the same security answers like, what's your birthday? I just enter what I think is a random date or something, you know, something that has no significance to me. And I put that in there. What was your favorite pet's name? I put in like uh, Mordock the dest- Destroyer or something. I don't know. I make something up, <laughs> right? Right. And I right, make a right. note of it in my password manager. So if I ever need to recover my password, I can do that because I have that information. But mm-hmm. that information is then encrypted and protected with multi-factor authentication. So it's pretty good. Yeah. One thing Tim says that I find kind of disturbing is that people post their boarding passes on social media. I don't get this. Never post your boarding pass on social media, not only for the PII reason, but for the operational security reason of people know that you're not at home and that leaves your home vulnerable, I think. Uh, one of the things I've often considered doing, but I've never actually done, is like taking some pictures around the house of my dogs or something and then putting it on Facebook while I'm away, right? Look how good my dogs are being today. Yeah, yeah. But- but my concern with that is that one of my one of my friends posting, "Hey, are you back home? I thought you were out of town."
2: Right. Well, and people can't resist posting pictures of their vacations as well, which I think is natural. But it does kind of, I suppose, if
0: if it were a concern, it does also say, "Hey, come rob us." Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And my wife and I have discussed this, and we've adopted the policy of posting those vacation pics when we get home. Okay. I think it's just good operational security. I like all the stuff that Tim says at the end of the interview. Great, great points, great tips. Be mindful of what you're sharing and with whom. Check those settings in your Facebook and your Twitter page and make sure that you're cognizant of who can see them. And if you're not cognizant of who can see them, just think that everybody can see them. Security awareness is big. It's very important for everybody. I like how Tim starts this interview. And he he starts off saying, you know, these guys aren't attacking your computer. They're attacking you. That's what you need to prepare for. They're not going to try to penetrate your network by using zero days and all that. They're going to they're going to talk to you and they're going to ask you to do things for them. That's how this works. Mm -hmm. Password hygiene, use good password hygiene and use a password manager to help you implement that. And multi factor authentication, multi-factor authentication, multi factor authentication. Over and over and over again. That's what I say. If you're going to do one thing, do that.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Tim Sadler for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time and sharing his expertise. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie.
0: I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.
1: Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too.